All right. Hey, welcome to the show, Michael. Thanks. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. It's an honor to have uh, uh, someone who's uh, won a couple of Pulitzers. And, you know, is it Pulitzer or Pulitzer? You're, you're, the, you're the one who's won them. You tell me. Uh, I always say Pulitzer. Okay. Very good. That's what I'm going to say since it's on your shelf and not mine. Yeah. Um, Somebody may disagree, but I think we're good. Two-time Pulitzer winning uh, editor and writer. And now for the story that we're going to talk about today, it's part of a package that has been submitted. And you're a, you're a finalist, right, for what we're going to talk about today. Yeah. Yeah, and, we were finalists last week uh, for uh, international reporting. Yeah, great reporting. I read, I read it in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. Great Thanks. story. Um, it's amazing no one has heard of this. Um, it had to be brought to me by someone, put it in front of my face and said, hey, you should read this. This is really interesting. And I, I'm thinking, why haven't I seen this on the news? And why, why hasn't Netflix done a documentary on this? I mean, I don't know, maybe it's in the works, but this is something, I mean, it has all of the, has all of the casting possibilities, right? For all of these people in this, because I've seen pictures of the man we're going to talk about. And I mean, come on, that guy's just yelling to be cast in a, in a, in a movie on this. So um, great story. What we're talking about today is um, a story that ran in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, which was called Dirty Dollars. And it is about a Ukrainian oligarch who kind of burned across the United States, primarily in the Northeast, um, an area that if you, if you follow the news a lot, you know, is in a very, very tough place economically. And, and in other ways. I mean, uh, opioids are huge there. Um, it's just, it's a place in America that's in a bad shape right now. And we're going to, we'll get into that. But Michael had that story in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, again, nominated for a Pulitzer this year. And it really throws back the cover on some of the way that dirty money is working its way into our economy and leaving in its wake, right? A lot of damage to people and to places. So, before we get started, Michael, I kind of wanted to just lay out some of the some foundation here, and that is because I don't even think I understand as fully as I should. What is an oligarch? Walk me well, through an oligarch. The way you would probably describe it, typically they're Russian oligarchs, right? But they're they they were the class of wealthy, powerful, often corrupt people who rose up out of the demise of the Soviet Union and took control of the local economies, grabbed control, sometimes violently, through violent means, sometimes through just sheer political muscle because they they were, uh, typically they were friends of Vladimir Putin's and others, and they rose out of the ashes of the demise of the Soviet Union and became very powerful figures in Russia and Eastern Europe. And that's where the name oligarch is often associated with in popular culture. But that's who they are. And they're usually billionaires. So, so do oligarchs usually have like one lane? Like I am the oil oligarch or I am the development oligarch. I am the bank. How does that work? No, they can own banks, mining, steel. Many of them were trained in metallurgical um, educations. They came out of that era of engineering they so they usually control vast natural resources that's how you get really rich over there is by taking control of gold mines silver mines um 
Um, but typically, then they get into banking. They may own have various controls of banks, and it's multi. I mean, they're they're a monop- they are typically and um, a a wide vast array of different kinds of industries, and they usually have pretty deep reaches into into those. So that's typically the way it works, and lots of times it's metals. Okay, and and so an oligarch is dependent upon his friends, right? So if there is a new prime minister of Ukraine or a president, I'm not sure who's the titular head there with all the power. Is it the prime right minister? now? And um, it's, it's Volodymyr Zelensky is the president and he happens to be a close friend of the oligarch that we uh, wrote about in our, in our project, investigative project. And Zelensky came from acting. Wasn't he an actor? He was a comedian. Yes. Yeah. Very good. He was actually, he had his own, show a uh, servant of the people and he played he played in this comedy um the president of of ukraine and 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 it happened to air on the same television station and network that's owned by the oligarch that, uh, that we wrote about and that he's friends with okay wow crazy okay so an oligarch would come in and those people that he's friends with or his family family and friends program, um, they then are usually, right, they become oligarchs. Yeah, in, in this case, they rise up because of political favoritism. Often they're kicking back to the corrupt leaders that they are friends with um, and others, and they find a way to muscle themselves to the top. And lots of times, as I say, it can be done through violence and everything else. And so in this case, Zelensky comes into power, right? He's the president of Ukraine. Um, right. And he has a friend by the name of Igor Kolomoisky. Is that Correct. Right? Correct. Very good. And who is Igor? Igor um, is a Ukraine national. He was born in Ukraine, trained in, in, in metallurgical studies. Um, he rose to power um, in the early 2000s. Um, he formed a bank called Private Bank. He um, also controlled natural resources, like he, he got not only into the steel industry, but in many of the alloys and the ores that go into steel. And he also bought into it airlines. So Malta, and of course, then he owns these media outlets, right? So he owns one of the largest uh, networks, uh, broadcasting networks in Ukraine. And he rises up, and it's through that bank, the bank becomes the foundation of his empire because as more people start banking there, he has access to their money. And that's Privat Bank? Privat Bank in Privat Ukraine. Bank. And, mm-hmm. uh, and they are, at that point, they become, once he gets the oligarch status, um, sounds like he was already pretty close, <laughs> Um, oligarch in name only. Um, so it, once he once he becomes once Zelensky comes in, why does Privat Bank become so big? Well, Privat Bank was before even before Zelensky. It it it, it look Kolomoisky's smart. He gets people around him that know what they're doing in terms of advertising, marketing, different strategies that allowed this bank to grow to become the largest in Ukraine. They at one time, and probably still do, have about 33% of all the deposits 
in um, in in Ukraine, and that the rest would be split up among many other banks. So they're the largest. Um, and he was already a billionaire by the time Zelensky rose to power. And in many ways, Zelensky's rise was because of Kolomoisky. Kolomoisky and he were business partners. And, you know, Kolomoisky owned the network where Zelensky had control of his comedy, very popular comedy show. So when Zelensky gets elected president, you know, holy cow, all of a sudden Kolomoisky's back with the right political uh, power. And now he's riding high in Ukraine. You know, this is so surprising to me because, you know, we hear about Ukraine over here and I've always thought Ukraine was kind of a first world nation. I mean, how how can this happen? I, I mean, I know this, you didn't write about this, but I'm sure you've had a chance to observe it. Like, what is it like in Ukraine that the, these kind of swings, you know, between these oligarchs and, and power and a comedian comes and becomes president? I mean, what is it, how would you describe the oligarch, uh, you know, government? And I don't know. Sure. Sure. There are several oligarchs there. Dmitry Firtash is another one who is under indictment in federal federal court in Chicago for um, bribery. And he is in hiding in Vienna and nobody seems to be able to extradite him to, to the United States. So that's another oligarch who's even wealthier than Kolomoisky, but probably not as politically powerful. Zelensky still controls many seats in the parliament there. You have to understand that um, Ukraine is an enormously corrupt country. Really, yeah. really corrupt. Oh, yeah, that's, what I was trying, that's what I was trying to figure yeah. out. Yeah, it's, it's a part of the culture, sadly to say. Not among a lot of the young people. There's a lot of young upright. I work with a journalist there named Tanya Kozareva, and that generation wants to do it right. They really do. They love democracy. They believe in the friendships that we have with the United States, and they really want their country to get rid of this kind of rampant corruption that's been a part of Ukraine, you know, since its founding and, and since the demise of the Soviet Union. Um, so this is the kind of country that fosters this, and it generates it, generation after generation. There's been a lot of efforts by the United States, the International Monetary Fund, the United Nations to clean up Ukraine. It's probably, I'm going to go out on a limb here and probably incur a lot of criticism from experts in our country, but I think it's better today than it was 15 years ago. That's probably not saying a lot, but it's a corrupt place. And so that's where you're, this whole, this is where this all comes out of everything that we're about to talk about. Okay, that's helpful. Yeah, I was really shocked at, at you know how how all this occurred over there because I never see Ukraine that way. I just never think about it that way. But I guess you're right. It comes from that Eastern European, that Soviet background, right? When people had to get creative to get ahead. Um, Very much. It's probably in the, it's probably genetic now. Now he had a partner, right? Gennady Bogolyubov. Bogolubov. Yeah, he's another oligarch. He's another oligarch. Much quieter. Much. They formed private bank together as younger oligarchs twenty years ago. They're both around. I think Bogolubov's in his fifties, and Kolomoisky's in his late fifties. But they started together on this run, and they're both enormously wealthy and 
both very powerful dudes. And they're both the major shareholders in Privat Bank, which by now is the largest financial institution. Correct. Yeah, until it was taken over by the government in 2016, they basically controlled the bank. In fact, Bogoluboff had a, a, a critical role within the bank. So they were covered in every way. They, they, that was their baby. And they were in that bank like a sole proprietorship. Do you know how much money was in that bank? Billions and billions. No, I don't. I should know that, but it's, it's enormous. It was, a, you know, it is the largest bank in Ukraine and, and among the largest in Eastern Europe. Okay. Okay. God dang it. Um, all right. So why do we care? Here's why we care. Cause I think around 2006, right. Um, Igor decides to, you know, set up shop in the United States. And so Igor goes on a spending spree and the spending spree is financed by embezzlement from his bank, the bank that he and Gennady are the major shareholders in the largest financial institution in the Ukraine. Um, and so they have employees, right, that are loyal to them that are, what, they're just sending deposits to him or they're writing, how are they setting all this up? Yeah, how are they moving yeah. It? Well, yeah, you have it right. The way it worked was um, they owned the bank so they could basically control things. So within the bank is what they call the shadow bank. These were people that were loyal to both oligarchs. And with these what they did was they generated loans and those loans in the millions of dollars, none of them were small loans, some were in the hundreds of thousands, but most of them were in the millions. And those loans went to shell companies controlled by both oligarchs registered in the Caribbean, like the BVI was a big place, the British Virgin Islands and uh, St. Kitts, uh, Nevis, those areas of the Caribbean. They, those, are, those are notorious holes for money laundering and financial crime. And that's where they would uh, register their companies. And so these loans would go to these companies and there's no beneficial owners listed in these companies. It's usually the registered agents, the lawyers, the, um, the oper- operatives, if you will, that would set these, that, that these would basically be in their names. So on paper, nobody knew the two oligarchs owned these dozens of shell companies, but that's where the loans were going and that's how they managed to loot the bank. So for the, for the average person who's looking over, uh, over the bank notes, what they see are, or looking over the records, they just see that suddenly Privat Bank is loaning a hell of a lot of money, hundreds of millions of dollars to all of these companies that are based in the British Virgin Islands and St. Kitts, et cetera, right? If you look a little deeper, you'll notice that there's no, you know, individuals, you know, that are tied to them. It's just attorneys and, you know, dudes that set that kind of shit up. So, um, so now they've got the way to get the money out of the bank that they control, the largest institution in the Ukraine, financial institution, which is blows my mind um and so they're moving that money the two oligarchs to these blind companies right boom so now they got the candy jar so candy jar is now set up in the british virgin islands what do they then do with all that money that they're moving well one interesting little piece of the puzzle in between is that they're when they do you put these loans out they move the money through 
sometimes 25 different companies. So it'll go through from one shell to the next shell to the next one. That's called layering in money laundering. You know, the further away you get from the source, the less likely the source of the money is going to be discovered by forensics and regulators, and what have you. So they layered the money through many companies until it arrives in the United States. And it usually... Mm-hmm. Let me ask you a question about money laundering. Why do you, why do you have to launder money? Because I hear about it a lot, and I think that a lot of us only know what we know about money laundering from two sources, Ozarks and Breaking Bad. Or Ozark and Breaking Bad, and like that. Those it. are pretty good ones. Those yeah. are pretty good. Are they, so, what did you learn as a reporter? Why why do they have to launder the money? And what is the usual way that people do, you know, launder launder money? Well, like there, for the, yeah, there, there's multiple, multi different ways you can do it through real estate, you can do it through securities and everything. But at this point in the laundering process, so it takes on a very a lot of different forms. But one thing to be sure is that when they're doing this. Um, they, they're stealing. So they have to cover up that crime, right? So in order to cover up the stealing, they have to conceal the money and find a way to clean it. We call it laundering because they're basically taking dirty money because it's stolen. Those loans are all given for, for many of them falsified reasons. Many of the, the loan documents would say, well, this is going to a um, metal, this is going to a steel business in Ukraine. No, it's not. It's going to buy a skyscraper in Cleveland, right? So the point is, many of the loan documents are falsified. So how are we going to cover up fraud and theft? We're going to do it by moving the money through as many different channels as we can so that you can't follow it anymore. So it's it, at some point, you're going to say, whew, I lost sight of it. I can't, I can't trace you got the old phrase, follow the money. Mm-hmm. It keeps you from following the money by doing it that way. That's the laundering process. It's called layering. When they do the layering, does this all happen by computer in one day? Or does it like they have to move it to one, then they have to wait a couple of days and they move it to the second? You know, great question. Great, great, great question. They had an algorithm going in a computer. Uh-huh. They knew when these loans could be let. And then when the loans were due, they would have new loans go and pay off the old loans. And that's a further process of fraud and money laundering because now at this point, you're attempting to conceal the original money stolen by using money that was subsequently stolen to cover up your tracks in that regard. They do that all the time. And computers often would be the source of this. Um, they would The computer algorithms would be set up so that when one loan was let, another loan down the road, or when that was due, would be paid back. Wow, man, that is crazy. So it's all done by computer now. Um, it was done by an algorithm. So everything was like automatic. Like the computer would know, okay, that one came due, boom, this company pays it off. Now we're moving the money to company X. Now this in, wow, that's amazing, man. Computer. They had their own system going. That's, that's, that's when you own the bank and you control the people within the bank, sure. the key, yeah. then it's your baby. It's your, they call, I think in the uh, private bank lawsuit, which is essentially the government, when it sued Kolomoisky in Delaware, the reason why is the companies that they had set up here to receive the money were set up in Delaware because it's 
Delaware is another notorious place for setting up companies where you don't have to disclose ownership. And when they um, when they did that, they would uh, their their reasons for um, uh, moving it through all these channels was so that there's no way you can track it um, even within the bank. So they had people in the bank in key positions doing their dirty work for them. Damn. Okay. So now our oligarchs. They got all their, they got their algorithms working. They got the money flowing. They got the companies growing, right, in the British Virgin Islands. And now they want to go shopping. Now they want to spend their shit. So yep. they go to Cleveland, right? Yep. They go to Ohio. Like that's part of it that I don't understand. Like why did they go to you know some of these economically, which might be answering my own question as I ask it, but why do they go to some of these places in such economic dire straits like Ohio and and outer you know and outside of Detroit? Um, and why the hell did they buy what they bought? So you want to take us through yeah. that? Sure. Shopping spree. Sure. Yeah. One thing, just to add, just one more quick thing, not to make this more complicated at all. I promise you. Oh, but the bank, the bank that moved all the money in order Where's to get bank? money. Okay, in order to get money into the United States, you have to turn to a bank that's registered here, right? They use Deutsche Bank. You should know that because that becomes significant and will become significant down the road. So we track $750 million into the United States through shell companies and then ultimately through Deutsche Bank into the United States. So that's kind of important to note, and we can talk about that later, but Deutsche is what you call an intermediary. They're the ones that are saying, hey, we'll take the money into US dollars for you. Don't worry, we got you covered. So why Cleveland? Think about it for a second. Um, a lot of money launderers go to Miami, New York, right? Um, they buy expensive playthings, you know, uh, diamonds and all sorts of things. Kolomoisky is the 2006 to 2008. We're kind of in the throes of the Great Recession. And all these properties, these skyscrapers you can buy are in Cleveland. They buy these historic buildings. One has the largest bank lobby in the world, which is somewhat ironic, right? But they would choose a building called the, Hunt, the, the Huntington Building. And, um, but they decided they could get them at great prices. And then when we got out of the recession, they would be that much richer, right? That, that, that property would increase in value. So they started buying skyscrapers. One Cleveland Center, the Huntington Building, 555 um, Public Square. These are all big, nice, old historic buildings in Cleveland that are a big part of their signature skyline. And then they decide they're gonna buy two office parks in Dallas. One was the headquarters of CompuCom uh, Systems, which are computers. The other used to be the headquarters of Mary Kay Cosmetics. Nice. So they buy nice. those, mm -hmm. so they buy those two big office parks. <laughs> yeah, they bought a skyscraper in Louisville for much of the same reason. But then Kolomoisky and his partners started investing in steel. They started buying steel mills. They buy Warren Steel in Ohio. It's a they big buy, steel mill, right? Of those that yes, exist. Yes, these are all iconic steel mills. 
in the hills of Kentucky, West Virginia. Mm -hmm. They're in Indiana. One was in Buffalo, New York. One was in Middle Othian, Texas. And they had 13 at one time. They actually bought 13 steel mills. Interestingly enough, one of them. Can we, can we, can we break it there? for? Let me, let me just back this up for a second. because. Sure. Okay. So we have a couple of oligarchs. I picture them in their bathrobes with sunglasses, you know, like walking down the street in slow motion. So we got, we got two Ukrainian oligarchs. They're rolling into Cleveland. They just bought the waterfront. And now they're buying 13 steel mills. Don't the city fathers and mothers of Cleveland go, hey, who are these guys? Oh, it gets better. Oh, it gets okay. Better. <laughs> okay. It gets better and worse. They bought a hotel there called the Crown Plaza using stolen money. Then they turned to the city and said, we want to fix this up and make it a four-star Weston. So would you give us a lot of your low economic development loans, the ones that are like zero percentage, right? There's so little interest rates. And they got them. So they got $43 million in loans from the Cleveland International Fund, from the County Port Authority, and from the County Commission, and, and from the city, the city of Cleveland gives them $43 million in loans so they can turn this Crown Plaza into a four-star Weston. Did it ever happen? Oh, yeah. They got the money, and now they've, forked, they're, they've, they've reneged on all the payments. And okay. the they never, they, of course, of course. Okay, they just, okay, okay. yes. I mean, we, I assumed, we, but I thought, I don't know, maybe they did right no, on the No, no, it's all in, they're all their foreclosures going on in all these facilities. Now. Okay. So, so they had 13 steel mills, uh, all the waterfront in Cleveland. They have the um, that that four the four hundred eighty four room hotel. Was that the Westin that they had that they wanted to? No, no, that was well, that was the Westin. That is correct. Yes, okay. yes. Okay, and then they have the office parks down in Dallas. So they're just like they're kind of, and so okay. Here's so to launder money. I'm assuming. Okay, here's what I know about laundering money, and I appreciate what you talked us through a minute ago. But I'm imagining I have somehow taken a million dollars, right? And now I got to get that million dollars cleaned. So I go and open up a strip club, right? All cash, hard to, hard, to, hard to trace the transactions, right? I have my buddies go in, right? And they take in, you know, each one of them takes in like 200 bucks, 200 bucks. You know, we do that over time. But at a certain point, all that money comes back out to me in a clean, in a clean manner. How does that work with this stuff? Because a lot of the of the money that they're quote unquote laundering is now being tied up in what seems to me to be very, you know, high cost, high overhead, highly regulated. Um, I, I'm just trying to understand, you know, the math. I get the whole flipper mentality that they were thinking. Hey, we'll go low, we'll sell high when we come out of it. I get that, but geez, they have all their money tied up in these, you know, pretty big projects. It seems like there's an easier way to launder your money. So help me understand what they were thinking. Of course, of course. It's a great question. Um, two things. One is that they were really wanting to make money. They it didn't, it, yes, clean the money. Take, most of the laundering was basically to steal through this. It was to cover up the stealing of the money. Okay. But once they got it here, they, they bought 22 prime pieces of real estate between skyscrapers, office parks, and steel mills. They also bought a Motorola cell phone factory 
in, in which is a very sad story in suburban Chicago. So here's what happened. Two things. One, the market didn't do what they thought it was going to do in Cleveland and other places. That is that it would really increase and do as well. It was a bad calculation. Two, they had bad people here running their facilities. They didn't, they, they were bad business people. They made very poor calculated decisions. And this isn't on Kolomoisky. This is on really his handlers here. Don't forget, he's banned. During the biggest years of him purchasing things, he can't get a visa to come into this country. Oh, I did not know yeah. that. So he's Oh, no, no. His, mo- yeah, his money is good, but he's got a visa. But no, it's something that just came up recently in our reporting. Okay. So he can't get into the country. That's the irony of all of this is that his hundreds of millions were welcome, but he couldn't get in. Okay, but, so we'll come back to Deutsche Bank a little later. I'll, you'll, yeah. you'll, I'll, I'll explain why that becomes a critical piece of the puzzle. Okay. So, but the, the, the steel mills were badly run. They put nothing into the safeties. You've got explosions. You've got these arc furnaces in, in, in Warren, Ohio, exploding and, and steel workers becoming injured and hurt. So you, number one. Two, the environmental, they were doing nothing to invest in the environment. And again, this goes back to his handlers. He had two key people, okay. his compatriots. They were his lieutenants in this country to represent he and his money. And they're both in Miami Beach. And they're both on paper as the officers of some of these steel mills and owners of the, of the properties. It, uh, once they established here and bought the properties, they have certain delegated lieutenants who became the presidents and whatever, and investors. So these two guys were buying these, these facilities and running them into the ground, just running them into the ground. It didn't go well. So were the, were, was that where Marty Korf, was he one of them? Yeah, he's one of the Miami Beach handlers, lieutenants, identified as a lieutenant by the Department of Justice and the Ukraine government. He was also a tiny, small owner of Privet Bank. He owned about, you know, like a less than 5% share in Privet Bank. Who was the other one? Was it? uh, Uriel Labor. Uriel Labor, L-A-B-E-R. And he's also, these guys were also back and forth between Ukraine and Miami Beach buying up these facilities it seems like one of the problems that they had as i just look at it right as a you know a guy with no background in detecting um but they got guys from the ukraine who i don't know if they have the most stringent environmental protection rules out there right and so i don't think they're even thinking about oh what do we do with this steel mill stuff i don't know just throw it on the ground bury it you know oh what what do we do about our workers i don't know what are they doing to ukraine i don't know tell them to walk it off so um, is that part of the problem too? They just, the, yes. they got the wrong guy, the wrong culture. Yes. They, and they ran it like you would run a place in, you know, Moldova or, or Kazakhstan. Yeah. They, they were just poorly run um, facilities with not only labor problems, but horrific um, uh, workplace safety uh, issues and, and, and violations. OSHA was in these plants all the time. And third, they were just not good business people. You know, they're still in a fight with the Ohio Attorney General in, in Ohio over 
all the uh, in, at Warren Steel, they left this place a cesspool of toxic waste and 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 um, and chemicals leaching into the Mahoning River, and um, they're still in a fight to get them to pay and to clean up this site completely to finish the job that they were supposed to start. It's just it's a horrific place, and you can see that in dirty dollars from our drone photography that we did over you can see this place looks like something out of a industrial nightmare and um, um, they just abandoned the place in 2016 and left all these workers without med immediately medical insurance or the ability to even access the retirement funds yeah yeah and and that was uh, well before i say that you know if people are watching this on youtube we will have the pictures up of everything that uh, michael's talking about so we do have i have seen the pictures of the warren steel uh property and it looks it looks like a war zone um so yeah we we will have the pictures up if if i think that's a better way to experience this interview so you can actually see the folks that we're talking about and you can see the properties that we're talking about um and i they're really sad stories because the warren steel mill as far as i know it was like an institution in that poor dying town and people had worked there for generations and suddenly these guys you know the oligarchs come in they buy it and they just run it into the ground. But it wasn't just running the factory into the ground. They ran these lives and these generations of people from Warren, Ohio. They ran their legacy into the ground. And now, what, what are these workers doing? There are uh, many of them are unemployed. Some of them, the ones that were per one of them is permanently disabled. The other one, they, they, you know, the ones that got hurt in the explosions are really sad cases. And I have to give Congressman Tim Ryan credit he reached out to all those guys after our story ran to try to help them you know and try to get disability for one of them and stuff so great credit to congressman ryan in ohio for the work that he's done he, he he's been fighting for the workers for a long time but but yeah and that's the, you know warren Steele was once known as copper weld and copper weld was one of these iconic companies it was headquartered in pittsburgh and it became a real backbone of American industry, if you remember, obviously World War II, you know, Rosie the Riveter and all these people, you hear about these stories about people going into these factories and making the machines, making the parts that, that would um, help us fight the war in, uh, in Europe and out elsewhere. And this was one of those places. So it goes way back. Mm -hmm. Um, what, what happened with the Motorola factory? That's a sad story. That's a really sad Yeah, great quote. Well, here again, um, the, they buy this facility. It was once among the largest cell phone company factories in the country. And Motorola um, closed it in 2003. They had greatly lost out to Nokia at that time in the cell phone industry war. And they missed various digital advancement. So they closed it down, right? At one time it employed thousands of people. It's a huge facility. So the, the good folks um, in Harvard, Illinois, which is a suburb, maybe 35, 40 miles outside of Chicago, they were um, long waiting for the next white night to go into this big, beautiful facility, right? And do something. So when when Korf and the others working for Kolomoisky and with him purchased this place, they're thinking, oh my God, this is great. We're gonna have 
And they said, when they came in, we're going to look for tenants, we're going to get you back to work, we're going to help the economy here. And they could not have been happier. And they ran this place into the ground. They stopped paying the taxes. They stopped doing upkeep, upkeep on the facility. They didn't pay the utility rates. So Edison, or uh, electrical company in Illinois, shut off the uh, heat in the wintertime and the entire fire suppression system, the sprinklers, all exploded because the water that was filled in there, it was frozen and the pipes exploded. So they destroyed the fire suppression equipment and they never put anything in there. It became a disaster. A tax lien company bought it and then put it up for um, uh, online auction. And another criminal unrelated to them from Canada buys the place and um, the Canadian government gets the DOJ to put a freeze on it. So that place is still locked down with nothing to show for it. And if you look outside, it's got weeds growing and it just looks like this was a state-of-the-art American facility at one time that was in a position to put in any major manufacturer. And now it's a just, again, it's another industrial wasteland of um, how they left in their wake, empty, boarded up buildings, unpaid property taxes. I mean, they left a real mess in, in the process. Oh, that, is, that is really sad. You know, I'm, I, I, I have this little thing where I go and I try to look up the histories of all these little towns in Illinois or Illinois. I'm never sure how to pronounce it. How do you, how do you pronounce it? Illinois or Illinois? Illinois, with, without pronouncing the S. Without the S. All right. Um, in Illinois, and there's so many little towns that at one point were like the place for industry. And the one of the ones that really gets me, and I, I know I'm getting off subject here, but I'll get right back, is a place called Cairo, Illinois. It's down at the where, where two, the two great rivers meet, and mm-hmm. it's virtually abandoned. And yeah. you look at the you look yeah. at Cairo on the map, and you're like, oh my god, that should be a major town. I'm gonna drive down there. It's almost completely abandoned, and it's almost and it's pretty much, I don't know if you're familiar with the story behind Cairo, Illinois, but it was really because the railroad moved and people stopped using the, uh, the steamships. And wow. so, yeah, they're right there at the meeting of two great rivers, but unfortunately no one uses those rivers anymore and we don't take trains. So really interesting story. I still follow that one a lot. Um, if anyone wants to go into a rabbit hole, there's a whole bunch, there are a number of good documentaries on Cairo, Illinois on YouTube. But anyway, all right, back here. So poor, another poor stepchild Illinois city taken advantage of and, and left at the curb. Um, what do you think their glory years were when they were thinking, all right, we got this stuff rolling. This is going to keep us going forever. When, when were those years that they were feeling this? You mean the oligarchs? Yeah. The oligarchs? Yeah. yeah. More probably 2006 to 2011. That was their like, whoa, they got this gravy train. They got hundreds of millions coming into the country and they are becoming, they are amassing a real estate empire, essentially. We think about it, 13. Yeah. The fact that they got into the steel industry at a time when the United States government is supposed to be protecting these industries because they are critical components of national security in our, in our uh, infrastructure and steel the fact that they managed to get in here and buy up all the steel and, and keep in mind 
The factory they own in West Virginia called Feldman Production is the largest producer of silica manganese. And what is that? It's a critical alloy that's used in 75% to 80% of steel making. It, it cleans steel and it makes it stronger. And so it produces a very strong end product in steel. And it's used by steel makers all over the country. And they're the largest producers. So think about this. You got an oligarch from Ukraine who's banned from coming into the country, and yet he controls one of the most critical alloys in steel making in America. Put that together. So I'm not the Pulitzer Prize winning reporter, Michael. How did that happen? How did that fall between the questions? Well, that's one of the big questions. I mean, I think we kind of fell asleep at our switch. Anytime, you know, one of the great guys, Jay Westbrook, is a former. Uh, council, long-time council member in Cleveland. And I asked Jay, Jay, why did you guys, how did you jump in bed with these guys? He said, Mike, first of all, we didn't know who they were. Nobody really bothered. When they're coming in town and they got all this cash, at a time when we're crawling out of a recession with one of the highest foreclosure rates in the country, we were like people in a desert without any water. And all of a sudden, somebody's coming along with jugs of water. And were we going to ask them, hey, where did this water come from? You know, <laughs> you know, they just, nobody bothered to ask the questions very hard. Uh, and that's really critical to this whole story, is the, due, the lack of due diligence that was paid almost at every level, local, state, and national. The, yeah. only, the only folks that ever asked any serious questions, at least in public records, was the Consumer Advocacy Division of the West Virginia Public Services Commission. When they went in and wanted to get reduced electric rates for their steel mill there, and they got it, by the way, there the Consumer Advocacy Division says, wait a minute, these guys aren't submitting audited financials. Who owns them? What kind of structure, who are their affiliates? Why are we giving them a checkbook? and passing the cost on to the ratepayers. But then they did it. And, they, and, and nobody answered the question. They just, that was it. They, they raised their hand and said, we don't think they should get it. And the, and the state says, hey, this is about jobs. It's about keeping factories open, you know? Yeah. And so one person did raise the red flag and they blew them off. You know, man, it reminds me of like a young guy in high school and the hot chick comes over and, you know, <laughs> Acts like she's going to talk to him. That guy will hand her everything, right? Everything. He just, he's hoping, oh, maybe she likes me. Yeah, this is it. This is my shot. Um, and then she goes and, you know, walks off and goes to the next guy. Walks off with the with the quarterback. With the quarterback. <laughs> Back to the Ukraine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And yeah, that's right. Yeah. And he's so calling sad. the shots. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So no. when did it start falling apart? Uh, and I know it's still in process and we're going to get to that. But when did the empire start? But oh, by the way, there was an American involved in here, a guy named uh, John Goolish, right? Wasn't he the COO or Goodish? John Goodish was the former. Um, he was the former top uh, executive at U.S. Steel, one of the top executive steels of U.S. Steel. He retired in 2010, I believe, and he was out there as a consultant. And they hired him and put him on one of their boards to overcome the steel industry. And John 
Uh, actually, one John did try to implement better safety standards in the factory. But yes, and of course, he told us, "Oh, I don't, I didn't, uh, I didn't know it was owned by Igor Kolomoisky or uh, Janati Bogolubov." I thought it was Mati, right? He knew Mati Korf. He thought yeah. Mati. This we all thought this was Mati's money. So that's how he kind of justified it in his mind. That's almost worse, right? I, I could have, I would have had more, um, I would have cared more if he would have said, you know, I thought, I thought Igor was a good guy, but like, you know, he's going Madi. Madi's like a third rate oligarch, right? He's like an oligarch, you know, uh, handyman. <laughs> so, so. Certainly the lieutenant, certainly a servant to the oligarch is yeah. one of the, one of the key people from Ukraine told me Kolomoisky was the daddy. He was okay. their dad. That's, good you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how he described it in Korf um, was the underling who was carrying out, according to the DOJ, was carrying out all of these, uh, all of these missions. Now, I'm going to be an odd question. I know this is organized crime by definition, but is it tied to Ukrainian organized crime or is it just oligarchs being oligarchs? No, it's a good, another good question. No, it is tied to uh, Ukraine organized crime, except they're, if you're an oligarch, you can get away with it. That's basically okay. what you, they, they have done. Several criminal investigations of Igor. They have never charged him. He was a suspect in a contract murder. He has been, um, uh, he, is, uh, he t- took over an oil company owned by the government once using his goon squad. He came in and they took it over one night and he took over a steel company in 2006 by sending in uh, a team of men carrying crowbars and uh, hammers and sickles and everything else. You know, you know, when you bring a sickle to the party, it's going to get real. So, yeah. That's my motto. Yeah. If, if somebody yeah. enters the party with a sickle. And, and you'll, and you'll more than likely um, get the, uh, the, the, you'll more than likely be able to take over. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay. So, how did it start? How did the, how the empire start? Uh, who caught on to it? Was it you? Was it your report? sure? No, no. At twenty, um, they started doing what they call stress tests on the various banks, looking at the oh right, banks. yeah. As we came and out, they, of that. They, they, they the government interceded, yeah. and it was two women. Two women played a critical role. Um, I'll mess up their names. One is Katerina. And the other is Valerie. So that's the most I can tell you. I can give you their last names, but I'd have to probably spell them out for you. But having said that, these women took it upon themselves to really start to look hard at the, in the Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it starts there. And the government starts to really make noise and starts to do these stress tests. And eventually they nationalize the bank because they do a forensic audit. Well, I'm sorry, the forensic audit came later. They agreed that this was in trouble, that they would need to take over the bank because of the the, the suspected massive fraud. So they nationalized it. They basically expropriated the bank from Kolomoisky and Bogolubov. Then they had Kroll, which is the um, the 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 uh, world compliance forensic expert come in and do a complete colonoscopy on the bank basically and they discovered that the bank had a 5.5 billion dollar hole in its loan portfolio 
And they started tracking those loans and they started finding everything that we're talking about. And they, I, no doubt, and I don't know if this has been promulgated yet, but there's no doubt that people within the shadow bank probably started to flip and, okay. and, and basically tell them this is what we were doing. Then they got, and so now that the government controls, it's called the National Bank of Ukraine, which is their, that's the regulatory agency. It's not actually a bank. They went in and did, they started to basically, they have access to the computer system and all the loan documents and electronic documents, and they start following the money. And they have the ability to do that now, to basically do that deep, deep forensic dive and piece together all the intricacies of the fraud. And it was massive. And they came out with a press conference in 2018 to basically say after two years of owning the bank, this is what it did. They almost destroyed it. Now, what does that matter here in the United States? That meant that the gravy train was over. So when they started getting into problems and things where they needed to either fix up their factories, pay their massive bills, this and that, they were unable to do so. They didn't have that stream of capital anymore coming in. So at that point in time, they had to style, start filing bankruptcy for some of the steel companies. So four of the, the big steel companies went into steel companies went into bankruptcy, and they represented nine of the steel factories of the thirteen. They stole the one in Detroit that never really got up and running. That was basically just a laundering mill. Warren Steel they abandoned. Um, and um, one of them they still own. Two of them they still own. We believe the second one, CC Metals and Alloys, is making Bitcoins now in Kentucky. Oh, wow. So, yeah, it's making Bitcoins now. Uh, but, and then Fellman is still producing the, the alloy that, that, that is continuing to keep them in operation, but with a much smaller crew of workers. So they basically ran out of money. They basically, it ended with, with the takeover of the bank. And no longer did they have that cookie jar anymore. But they're still in operation, right? The, the oligarchs. One company, one company, the rest are all, I think they have one building in Cleveland left that they still control. The others they've lost through foreclosures, um, forced sales. Um, there are forfeiture actions underway by the Department of Justice civil forfeiture to take over some of these places because they they lay out very clearly they believe that they were the object of a massive criminal scheme and that's how they obtained them so they're they're trying to take those over um and that's where they're at today they have one factory running and they have two i'm sorry the other making bitcoins and they have one skyscraper left that they control in cleveland the rest are all under lock and key. Now, can't I, so I, I'm assuming that a lot of local governments. I'm, sh- I'm sure there are civil suits. I think there are some civil suits from the uh, from the people that were injured, right? And I mean, we're talking bad injuries, right? We're not we're not really really bad. And also, you have a lot of civil. There are 19 judgments in the court in Ohio against Warren Steele for millions and millions of dollars. So, how are they able to continue holding onto those properties? Even the Bitcoin place in the barely. I mean, they're all set up in separate corporations. They all have um, uh, their owners are um, 
I, I do believe at some point they may start going after those facilities. Okay. As part of the compensation. You got the layering, right? You got the layering problem. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Prevent Bank is trying to take over everything that's left, which isn't much. And they're in court in Delaware, Chancery Court in Delaware. Okay. And that's playing out. That's a very long, detailed sure. lawsuit. Um that you may want to link to. It may be great to, to show because it's well-written and it gives intricate detail to the whole scam okay. based on uh, documents that were seized by the bank itself, by the government itself, I should say. So how are Kolomoisky's other uh, oligarch endeavors? <laughs> I mean, are those still, you know, everything better? Yeah, no, he's still in operation in, in other places in the world. With his other, with his other stuff? He owns real estate. He owns a home in Tel Aviv. He owns a home in Geneva. He has a, a probably a, a you know a many facilities in Ukraine. Um, he's fine. He's he's valued. I think the last valuation of him was much lower. It was like one point one billion. My guess is it's much lower today. Much 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 less lower. Okay, so there has been an effect. So you know when you told me the government went after the bank, it, it kind of surprised me because wasn't he? Wasn't he? Wasn't the uh, current president? You know, one of his allies. So what happened there? Was there a falling out? No, he's still friends with um, Zelensky. They still, although Zelensky tries to distance himself because he ran on a platform of anti-corruption. So it's difficult for him to reconcile. He doesn't even call him a friend anymore. So it's been somewhat strained. But I'd be surprised if Zelensky went after him. If the DOJ indicts, uh, if indictments come down, there is an active grand jury. We broke the story about an active grand jury investigation in Cleveland Mm -hmm. on all of this. It covers everything. Um, That could lend itself to indictments. And if it does. Do we have an extradition agreement? No, we have no extradition treaty with Ukraine. Although Igor is um, also a citizen of Cyprus and also of Israel. So they've actually even talked about potentially um, extraditing him as a citizen of one of those countries. Okay. And we do, I believe we have an ex- Boy, don't, you know what? I'm not going to go out on the limb on this one. So I don't know what our status is with Cyprus okay. in Israel. I should know, but I don't. Igor, Igor likes to layer everything, apparently, even his citizenship. Um, yeah, yeah, or cover all his bases, right? What, what, what point did you come into this story, Michael? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, we were on a story. I was working for BuzzFeed, and and we were on a story also with another um, nonprofit global um, called the Organized Crime Corruption Reporting Project (OCCRP). They do some amazing work, and and thank God they're out there when nobody else is on some of these fronts, various fronts. But um, we were we broke the first major national story on the back channel campaign. Remember when Rudy Giuliani was running with left partists and Igor Fruman, another Igor, this one is Igor Fruman, and they were running, they were trying to dig up dirt on then then former Vice President Joe Biden. And um, they were in the throes of this. And I was able to interview left partists and I was able to find records and get documents. And then I my counterpart, two counterparts in Ukraine, Tanya Kozareva and Aubrey Belford were running on the Ukraine stuff. And so we were pieced together a big story on the back channel campaign. 
and how this was going on in Ukraine, which eventually led to the impeachment hearings mm-hmm. of eventually this story and others and, and other revelations that Congress turned up led to the first impeachment of, of President Trump. So that's how I first got wind of who is Igor Kolomoisky. Why? Because two of Rudy's, these two operatives that were running with Rudy went to Kolomoisky to say, will you introduce us to Zelensky, who's about to be president? He was the front runner. They knew he was going to win this election. So they flew to Tel Aviv, where that, that's where Kolomoisky was then, and says, can you help us set this up? And Kolomoisky basically threw him out of his office. He said, I'm not doing it. I'm not here for Trump. I'm not here for you. Don't, I'm not a secretary. You know, <laughs> and, and so they left. And, and then they started this Twitter thing back and forth. And that's what we get. So he became a minor character in the Trump impeachment drama. That's how we first got wind of Kolomoisky. And I started researching him. I go, holy moly, there's more to this than than just the back channel campaign and, and whatever his role was or wasn't in it, this is a big time story. So we started pulling paper, going through court documents, going through, and eventually, you know, we used confidential documents that we got tons of confidential stuff leaked to us that turned out to be the first story we did was part of the Finson Files case, which you mentioned earlier, that was a finalist for the Pulitzer in international reporting. I wrote that last September for the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. Then when I was in Pittsburgh, I went to Pittsburgh to help them launch their investigations team there. I said, my God, there's a Pittsburgh connection to all this, especially in the steel industry and John Goodish. So we did Dirty Dollars, was basically, um, an offshoot of that first story we did. And that's how we journalistically started breaking down the scam in, 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 in detail. And we have more stories coming out. So oh, good. Um, good. we'll send those to you. Yeah, yeah. Stay tuned. Yeah. Well, you know, Michael, I, I just don't know why more people, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on, is because why don't more people know about that? Why do you think more sunlight hasn't been, you know, on on this story because it's an amazing story. It affected real American lives. It shows how many people were asleep at the switch. It shows how much dirty money is in the real estate market and in, in other industries. Um, why why hasn't this become bigger? And do you think it will? Do you think it's a matter of just filtering out there? Yeah, I think personally that I can only guess, um, but it wasn't in Miami. It wasn't in New York. It was in Cleveland. And I think it's in the heartland of America. Now, a couple things. Those newspapers there in the, in the, in the broadcasting outlet, particularly the news organizations that used to be so prominent, the Cleveland Plain Dealer, uh, Detroit Free Press, other papers there. They're not Chicago Tribune to some extent. You'd think that they would have written about it since, since the Motorola plant was right there. Detroit Free Press, because the, uh, they own Michigan Seamless Tube, 40 miles from Detroit. The problem is, I think the resources devoted to this kind of work is not what it used to be. And that's a reflection on journalism. But just think of the area. It's Cleveland. It's not the sexiest. It's a, to me, that's a great city. I love Cleveland. But it's, it's not, it is the home of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But having said that, it's not. Again, it's not Miami, it's not LA, it's not California, 
you know, where you still have so much prominent media there, you know, it's Cleveland. And I think it got buried. I think it's one of those stories that just, um, that I think more will come out if there are indictments. Right now, there are civil forfeiture actions with stunning levels of criminality alleged by the DOJ. They've already done search warrants into the facilities. Um, they've done all sorts of raids okay. on the offices um, of Kolomoisky and his partners. So I do think that they're, and they've made several trips, by the way, to Ukraine to meet with um, their their counterparts in law, in law enforcement there. So I think the deck is set for that, but it's Cleveland, you know, and I think it's not, it's not LA, it's not New York, it's not Miami, you know, I think that plays a role. I guess, unfortunately, in our media, the lives in Cleveland and the lives in Warren, Ohio, yeah, they're just not as valuable as the lives in New York. And the lives yeah, it's sad, because they are. When you think about it, that was the backbone of America. You know, that was the, that's the, that's the, the Rust Belt continues, still a great manufacturing area, it's just not what it used to be. And these folks are proud blue collar workers from Pittsburgh to Warren to, to West Virginia to elsewhere. And um, yeah, they got burned. You know, they got burned. They worked in very dangerous places and, and were hurt. And it's sad. You're right. You're right. So, Michael, so Michael, before we go, Deutsche, Deutsche Bank. Wasn't yeah. anybody, isn't anybody going to talk about Deutsche Bank and their role in this? Stay tuned. Yes, the great question. Stay tuned. In the fall, you'll start to see some things, I believe, um, at some point coming out of Congress, coming out of Washington. Deutsche Bank was a major player in this. And, and I didn't say this, but I should have. They filed suspicious activity reports, SARS, to, to, to basically let the, you know, basically saying, um, we believe this has all the hallmark signs or certainly hallmark signs of money laundering. Well, they did. And they filed multiple SARS, but just kept moving the money. That was the best. You, you know, SARS are not a get out of jail card. And, and because we got privy, the FinCEN files was a leak from Treasury of all these SARS, suspicious activity reports. We found drug traffickers, Amazing. oligarchs, corrupt national leaders moving money through the United States, through U.S. banks. They would just file the SARS, but they're making money on the SARS. And so that's how that continued. That's what won the Pulitzer. That's why we were Pulitzer finalists. Last week, it was based on that. And it was a, a fellow reporter, a friend from BuzzFeed, Jason Leopold, who a lot of your Twitter followers will know from his FOIAs. He's the FOIA warrior. Um, Jason is the one that obtained these records mm -hmm. from Treasury so that we could all share in them and use them to launch this project. So this kind of uh, came indirectly out of California back to us here. So... Uh, Stay tuned on that too. All right. Well, Michael, <laughs> but that was Deutsche Bank. Yes. Michael, thank you so much. This has been an honor to have you on here. And I will not only follow the rest of the story, but I'm going to follow the uh, Pulitzer process as it moves forward because you really do. You really did some amazing, you did God's work on this. And um, I want to have you on again in the future as things move forward. Well, thanks so much. And it's an honor being here too. Thanks for having me. All right, Michael. Bye bye.